Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to Higher Love the podcast that poses the question, what if we quit falling in love and instead chose to rise in love? I'm your host, Jordana Levine, and this is a podcast series about love, yes, but a huge piece of the love puzzle is dating. And I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we've spent most of 2020 knee-deep in a pandemic, making dating a little trickier than we'd anticipated. If finding love feels further away than ever and you're slipping in and out of, oh, I'm fine, and am I going to be single forever? Settle in, get your pen and notebook ready, because this podcast series is going to guide you into finding not just any love, but a higher love, pandemic and all. Welcome to the very last episode of Higher Love. Over the course of this 10-part podcast series, I hope that you've been able to find out more about who you are, what lights you up, and what you're truly looking for in love. Hopefully you're dating and taking your strength and personal vibration out on the town with a new perspective on what love should feel like rather than thinking who is going to love me and how can I impress them. In this final episode, we're doing things a little differently to previous episodes. I wanted to explore the concept of compatibility. I think it's a major contributing factor in finding a higher love, but what exactly are we looking for in a potential partner? We spoke in previous episodes about aligning your love values with your partner, but I wanted to take it a little deeper and perhaps a little off the predictable path and look at compatibility outside of the box that it's often been placed in by relationship psychologists. And although it is extremely valid to have values, interests, and future visions in common, I'm definitely not discounting these. Let's make that very clear. I wanted to have a look at some of the other ways we could view compatibility. In this episode, I chat to Jules Ferrari, a psychological astrologer who takes us on a journey through the natal chart and how we can use it as a guide to navigate the way we show up in relationships. Then I catch up with Emmy Ray, a human design facilitator who discusses the importance of emotional compatibility through the lens of human design. And then lastly, you'll hear from kinesiologist Zoe Bosco about working with wounds and triggers in both your life and your partner's when navigating a relationship. You might like to get yourself prepared for this episode by finding out two things about yourself. The first thing you want to do is find your natal chart. You can do this online, just type in what is my natal chart or through an app like CoStar. The other thing that you want to download is your human design chart. Now, when you first do this, it's going to be super confusing, especially if you've never heard of human design before. But what you'll want to know for this episode are two things. Your human design type, it'll either be projector, generator, manifester, manifesting generator or reflector. And then you also want to have a look at your inner authority. And I'll go more into this a little later in the episode. If you don't have either chart on you, don't stress, you're still going to find this episode super helpful, but it is always nice to find out a little bit more about ourselves. You'll remember a few episodes back, I asked Beck and Phoebe, remember them, if they ever judge men's dating app profiles based on star sign, to which they both laughed and pointed out the ridiculousness of such a thing. I had admittedly gotten myself into a bit of a habit, but... You know, I've studied astrology long enough to know that you unequivocally cannot judge a person by their star sign alone. You must know their entire natal chart. Hence why the question, what time were you born, has sneakily made its way into the dating zeitgeist. Let's meet Jules officially. I'm Jules Ferrari. I'm a psychological and evolutionary astrologer. Essentially what that means is 
everyone has like a natal chart or a birth chart based on the time and location that they were born into. And that creates essentially like this symbolic language, which is a map of the personality. Um, and what I do is I look at that through um, like a psychological and evolutionary lens and you can really see um, yeah, the entire sort of nature of a person, how they were socialized, um, how they may um, interact with other people, their wants and needs. Um, yeah. Throughout this entire 10 part podcast series, I've highlighted to you the importance of self awareness. So I asked Jules, how can we use astrology as a self awareness tool? Astrology is really brilliant and very practical um, as a self-awareness tool. Essentially, like having your natal chart read is like having a stranger read your diary back to you. You know, it's like I, you're not necessarily hearing anything that's going to blow you away or that you didn't know about yourself. It's really essentially a, a, a tool that can be used to validate that you are who you are you know it's it's like you can really see all aspects of the personality including the parts that you may be blind to you know like the more shadow aspects essentially like a natal chart is or a person is a very very complex tapestry and the natal chart really pulls together all of the very disparate parts of the personality um, and provides context essentially so it's a really great way of getting a like another person explaining back to you um all these particular facets of the self and really being able to a good astrologer can really bring context to otherwise disparate parts of the self if a bunch of you listening are still a little skeptical of astrology you're absolutely not alone trust me i find myself defending it way too often it's likely that your scepticism stems from some common astrology misconceptions. I think a lot of people have this idea that it's like a tool of a divination tool or that it's some in some way like a fanciful belief system that's very rooted in predeterminism and it's nothing like that at all. It's it is very psychological. You know, the type that I've studied is um, the two astrologers that I learned from were both Jungian psychoanalysts first, um, and Carl Jung himself got into astrology as a way of um, explaining these 12 very particular archetypes. It, it's extremely nerdy. It's, it is very psychological. A really good astrologer is always studying. You know, you never get to the end. Um, but there, there is very much this idea that it's, it's fanciful. It's in some way like creative writing, which a lot of horoscopes are, by the way. Um, and that it is, yeah, divination, but it, it isn't. It's, it is very much, I'd say it's very much a psychological tool to have within, um, yeah, the tool belt. I find that most people's scepticism stems from the fact that they can't relate to their own star sign. But this is because you are so much more than the sign the sun was in when you were born. I think a lot of people are starting to become aware of the natal chart, that we all have this very complex, um, multifaceted um, astrological persona. Um, but for a long time, most people have just thought that they are their sun sign. But really, um, your star sign or sun sign is just one expression of the self. You know, it is like an archetypal um a core archetypal journey that a person takes. But for example, if you are a Gemini, I'm a Gemini, you're a Gemini. I'm a ninth house Gemini. So Geminis classically are disseminators of information. We take in so much sensory data, like all types of sensory data, and we process, uh, disseminate, and and then re-express that information. Um I am a ninth house Gemini, so I am a – this is where it gets a bit complicated, but I am – the ninth house is classically ruled by Sagittarius, so I am a Sagittarian-flavoured Gemini. Um, so in that context, how I disseminate information is very much in a Sagittarian way, which is through experiential learning. My um, – Knowledge base is very much geared towards ninth house or Sagittarian aspects, aka 
why why do we exist? What is existence? What are the belief systems and meaning that people have applied to existence through time and space? That's where my Gemini energy is focused. So when you read your horoscope in your favorite magazine, it can't possibly take into consideration the house your sun sign is in or the rest of your natal chart. Not at all. Yeah, it's just going to say that I'm a flirt and I'm (laughs) two-faced. Okay, so the question we're all here for, how do we use astrology to find compatibility with a partner? What I would say to this and what I say to my clients is, um, in terms of your compatibility, having your natal chart read really brings a level of self-awareness, particularly around your values, you know, how you communicate, what your wants and needs are. Um, I read for probably 90% women and um, something that I find I'm often saying to a lot of my female clients is, like, what do you want? What are your wants and needs? Let's put the focus back on you. Like, what values are you looking for in somebody else um, rather than how can you adapt to the wants and needs of another person? Um, sound familiar? Every episode before this one has been asking you to tune into who you are, what you value, and what you want in a relationship. It's from this space that you're able to recognize compatibility in another. In terms of compatibility, it's it's really knowing the more you're self-aware, the more you know who you are, um, what you want and need, then the better you'll be in, in navigating uh, a relationship or a crush or navigating red flags, for example. So when it comes to using our natal chart as a guide to our own relationship guff, but also how someone else might show up in a relationship, what parts of our chart are most important to look at? Jules says that we really want to be looking at two planets, Mercury and Venus, as well as the moon sign. Mercury within the natal chart and astrology represents how we receive and give out our information. Um, it's our mind. It's it's um, yeah how we communicate. Venus is a lot to do with well, it's twofold: what we're attracted towards, um, what we're what we find attractive, uh, as well as what our values are what we yeah what we value and then the moon is really a lot to do with our how we emotionally secure um it's a lot to do with yeah our, our emotional terrain um so for example uh, it's not as you know i i have a lot of clients who say like oh what's the best sign for me it's really it's really not about that because it's you know to use myself as an example i'm a Gemini with a Virgo moon, Libra ascendant, aka very, very cerebral and aesthetic, uh, but very cerebral. But then Mercury for me falls in Cancer, so I'm an emotional baby. I'm I can be very <laughs> moody, <laughs> very moody, very withdrawn uh, in arguments with my partner. Um, so it's it's. It is very multifaceted. Being aware of how you are in communication, like me having that awareness, which I have been analyzing recently, assists me in my communication with my partner. If we get into an argument or a debate, I'm aware like, oh, here comes the shell. Here comes the crab shell. I'm going to hide all of my feelings and, and turn on the moodiness. Um, so, yeah, that that's really important um, to be aware of what your communication style is, which is really Mercury. And then Venus, yeah, I mean, what do you value? What are you attracted towards? Let's use my Venus as an example. Oh, dear God. Venus is really fascinating because, um, yeah, it's kind of how we are in love. So, for example, with Jordana having Venus in Gemini, she needs variety. That doesn't mean she needs 10 different people to satisfy her needs though more power to her if that's the case just so we're clear that's not the case what that really suggests is um within love she's going to need a person who is growth orientated gemini energy does not want stagnancy if a person if they draw in a person who's going to stagnate and not grow and be boring as f um that's the kind of thing that would really 
become very unattractive to a, you know a Gemini in, in Ven- uh, sorry Venus in Gemini. So, yeah, it's like needing somebody who's growth-orientated, somebody who is as interested in taking in the world and discussing the world as um, the Venus and Gemini person is. So how does it all work? Are we comparing, for example, our Mercury with our partner's Mercury or is it more complicated than that? It would certainly be helpful to be aware of your mercury and your partner's mercury just to understand the different styles that you may be coming at um communication with and then to add a whole other layer into it the houses um for example um sorry to be a narcissist but i'm just i can only use myself here rather than many of my clients <laughs> um i'm yeah so i'm a gemini sun virgo moon Um, My partner is a Scorpio sun, Aquarius moon. Um, They're they're four very different energies. However, both our suns are in the ninth house and both of our moons are in the twelfth house. So even though we speak, you know, with different accents, um, we're geared towards the same same things. We're we're really, yeah, expressing ourselves in, in... in similar areas of life, um, just in a, in a different way of doing it. So it's, it is really handy to know what, for example, what house um, your partner's son is in because that's really going to show you yeah, where they're expressing the core energy of who they are. It's important to note that when you look at your compatibility with another on an app like CoStar, it's a very basic algorithm that doesn't factor in houses or cross-planet compatibility. So is it possible to just look at someone's chart and know if they're going to be a good match? You may somehow get your fingers or hands on a person's um, time of birth and you might be able to look up their chart or look it up on COSA. Really, I mean, how a person plays their chart is so up to them. You may find that, you know, for example, your Venus is conjunct their Jupiter, which is, you know, great affection. That's as well as um, the potential for a lot of abundance within the union. However, that person may be totally um, unevolved. They may not have evolved into their chart. They may be living in the lower sides of their chart. You really can't go off um, you can't just go off of compatibility, astrological compatibility, specifically if it's just something that you're looking up on the computer. Okay, fair enough. We get it. You can't judge a person by their natal chart. But surely there are a few indicators of what a great partner someone might be based on aspects of their chart. What are some classic things we can keep an eye out for? You know, within the natal chart, there's the seventh and the eighth house, and there are lots to do with partnership. And there is one classic thing which I will I will say is, if you have if you have Neptune in your seventh or eighth house, you need to be, or if you have um, the Moon in Pisces or Venus in Pisces or the 12th house, you need to be really aware of your boundaries within relationships. Okay, so hold up a second. I have Neptune in the 7th house and Venus in the 12th house. Essentially, an individual may have a very strong idealised version of the person that they want to be with or they have an idealized version of love or a person you know like the ideal man for for example or ideal woman Um, and then they meet somebody and they very quickly project that ideal onto the physical person that they've just met and then they fall in love with that projection and then after a period of time the projection falls away and it's like whoa who are you guilty as charged it is a lot to do with Um, fantasy projection, an idealized version of love, Um, but, yeah, a a strong need for boundaries. And the thing is if you do find you have that in your chart, you can fall in love or marry a person on the second drink kind of thing. Uh, It's it's an innate romanticism. So it's just really, you know, and that's why astrology is cool because if you find you have that, 
it's it's important to have that self-awareness and to somehow hold that if you are dating um to have some level of grounding or find some level of grounding where you're able to pull your energy back into yourself and essentially go you show me who you are rather than let's merge <laughs> if that makes sense okay so excuse me while i make this about me again with neptune in the 7th and venus in the 12th what does this mean about my relationship with love well it makes sense that you've written a book about love and higher love because that's exactly what that energy wants for it's it, in a in a sense without getting too spiritual i guess it's it's really looking for that connection to something higher and it finds it or it's searching for it through love whereas that's also something that you know as an individual you can develop that sense of a higher connectivity through you know i guess through spirituality through creativity but yeah that makes a hell of a lot of sense then Thank God for that. So in summary, the benefit of a natal chart is for your own self-awareness so you can be aware of your strengths and weaknesses and then decide how you're going to work with what you've been gifted at birth. When it comes to comparing your chart with another person's chart, it's about not judging them at face value on their chart and instead allowing them to show you how they live out the chart they were gifted at birth. That's why it's really important to allow someone to show you who they are, you know, rather than, cause I, you know, I find that, well, I don't know. It's natural if you are a romantic or if, you know, if you get across, you just want to know everything about them. But really it's like, what I'd say is pull back your energy, like let them show you who they are. Cause they will. Um, and, and it's not, it's usually not very related to what they say unless their actions entirely, um, entirely land and are on the same pages as their word um but you know it's it's natural that somebody might want to try and get find out what their birth a, a crush's birth time is and then obsess over um <laughs> the chart and the potential compatibility and what this computer program says you know your your compatibility is going to be but really I, I i wouldn't recommend it it's not it's not grounded. It's not healthy because um, it's really taking you out of your power and your energy, you know, because you might you might read something and it's like, wow, this is going to be the greatest relationship ever. But then that person acts like a total dickhead. I mean, <laughs> what have you bought into? Have you bought into the idea or are you buying into what's actually happening in front of you? I couldn't let Jules go without asking her if she had any tips for asking what time were you born? Good luck. <laughs> I would just, uh, honestly, I know it's so, such a boring answer and I'm so sorry, but I would say check yours first simply because that that's what you need to know. Is it, it really, it, it's such a boring mum answer, uh, but it, it really is like looking at your chart and pulling your energy back into you and your wants and needs because that's really what's going to assist you in finding an excellent partner versus somebody who might look good on paper um, but hasn't evolved into their chart whatsoever. So that's compatibility from an astrological perspective. It's not that different to the ways in which we've talked about it throughout this series. Know thyself. The same premise applies as we move on to my next guest, Emmy Ray. For this interview, it would be handy to have your human design chart in front of you. It's a very confusing chart, and unless you sit down and have a reading with a human design practitioner, it can be beyond confusing. But for the purposes of this interview, we'll be looking at your type and your inner authority. You can find your human design by visiting jovianarchive.com. Okay, let's meet Emmy Ray. Okay, I'm Emmy and I am a yoga teacher and also a human design teacher guide. Um, I do classes, readings, courses and all those kinds of things to kind of really understand on a practical level how we can work with human design. If you're like, what the hell is human design? I'm sure you're not alone. But personally, for me, knowing my human design has changed the way I show up in all aspects of my life. I asked Emmy to describe human design to the uninitiated. 
I would bring to mind, first of all, how you get your astrology chart, right? Your natal chart. So you need your birth details, time, date, place. You input this into a system and it spits out basically a map of your energetic body and then some. So in a really oversimplified way, human design gives this imprint or this blueprint of who you are um, on the planet in this lifetime and what energy you came in with and what energy you're really gifted in understanding and feeling and picking up from others. Sounds pretty cool, right? But what's the importance and significance of knowing your own energy? I think it's so important because we've been even in a lot of the spiritual kind of traditions and the self-help in quotation marks world, often we can be treated as the same person, right? From one to the other. But human design says that we've all come in with different energies that we have access to and different energies that we're vulnerable to. And so knowing which energy you came in with and which energy you actually didn't come in with takes away so much like what's wrong with me, takes away so much guilt and takes away so much like like of the losing energy over trying to be someone that you're not. So how do we use human design as a self-awareness tool? How does it allow you to be so in tune with your own energy? Yeah, you know, the, the biggest feedback I hear is that, you know, understanding my energy was just so validating or seeing the human design chart um, just was like a permission slip to be who I already knew I was. Um, and I think we can waste so much energy, create so much um, tiredness, fatigue, resistance, frustration when we try to be an energy type or an energy being that we're, that's, that's not who we are, that like the world said we should have been um, instead of how we were born. Okay, so if we're using human design as a tool for self-awareness, how can we use the teachings of human design to learn more about compatibility? with a partner. And this is where I feel it gets really interesting because if you look at, you know, one chart, your own chart, and then maybe you look at a chart of anyone else, it doesn't have to be your partner, but that's, you know, definitely an interesting one. Um, you can see that often you might have different centers. It looks like the chakra system. You know, if you've ever seen a picture of someone with those chakra um, centers up the middle of the body, it looks a little bit like that. But one person might have two of the chakras and one person might have five of them. And so it's really interesting to then have a look at how you're you and how they are maybe completely and totally different. And so it becomes really a tool by which we begin to understand each other on just a, in a deeper level. What Emmy is saying really isn't dissimilar to what Jules said in regard to astrological compatibility. It's less about making judgment about the other person and more about having an awareness and understanding of how you can relate to them and them to you. I asked Emmy Ray if it works the same way in human design. Yeah, it's so similar. And people often ask, like, who am I compatible with? Who am I compatible with? And I don't know if um, it's the same in astrology, but it's like in human design, it's like the, the tool is not about who am I compatible with. It's like, how can I accept that person for who they are? And exactly, it's not an excuse to be like, I don't know, rude or dismissive or to ghost people. None of that, that's not even in there. That doesn't even come into it, right? It's more about accepting the other person um, rather than this person is good for me or bad for me based on, on what their chart says. Okay, so now is a good time to get your human design chart out. I asked Emmy what we should be looking at initially when we first download our chart. The first thing is a lot of information on there. It's not even worth looking at in the beginning. It's interesting to see what your energy type is. So if you're a generator or a projector or a reflector, what your authority is, right? And then to also just look at the chart and look at these little colored senses. Some will be colored in, doesn't matter what color they are, and some will be white. And just have a look at where you have color. This is where you have natural energy and where you have whiteness is where you're open to other people's energy. If you're familiar with your human design, even if it's just knowing your type, you might be wondering from a compatibility perspective, what types are the most compatible? 
Emmy assured me it doesn't work like that and that a more interesting way to look at compatibility in human design is through the emotional and open emotional authority. In human design, 50% of the population or just over 50% are called emotional beings. And so you can have an emotional projector, you can have an emotional generator, an emotional manifester, and the other 50% are what's called sometimes non-emotional, but that feels really incorrect for me because non-emotionals feel so much. So I would say it's open emotionals, right? And so the emotionals, the emotional beings in human design almost push out emotional energy into the atmosphere, into the world or into the relationship. And the open emotional being feels that energy in a almost a heightened way. Okay, so how do we know if we're emotional or open emotional? The easiest way to do it without confusing anyone about the centers is to look under authority. If your authority says emotional, um, then you're an emotional being. If your authority is anything else, then you're an open emotional being. Let's clarify this one more time before moving forward. If you're an emotional being, you project emotion outwards. And if you're an open emotional, you absorb the emotion of others. That's right. Emotional beings are have this wave, this up and down, these highs and lows. And so they create they're the creators of emotional energy. So when it comes to compatibility between emotional and open emotionals, what are we looking for? It's really interesting. And this is not like 100% what I see a lot of is an emotional being and an open emotional being being in a relationship together. This tends to be, I mean, and it can, I've definitely seen two open emotionals and two emotionals, but more often than not, the partnerships have one of each. And so it's kind of that opposites attract thing, right? Um, but what it means is that one part of the, like one person in the relationship is creating or is creating emotional energy at all times. And sometimes that emotional energy is up and it feels really good. What happens in that peak of the wave is that the other person in the relationship who's open emotional also feels really good. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So what's the work here? Once you know your authority whether you're emotional or open emotional, where can we start to find harmony in relationships? The work for the open emotional being is to just know that, yes, you are, in a way, you're an emotional empath, right? This is who you are, but you're not a victim to that, right? By any means, you're you're supposed to be open in that way. You came in, you know, with this openness for a reason. And so it's important that when you're a friend or your partner or whoever you're dating, you feel something is off with them, right? Remember that even if they're in like a 2% of a bad mood, you might be feeling it at 10%. So it's not your job to fix them. It's not your job to make it go away. They probably hate it when you tell them how you're feeling, even though you know how you're fe- they're feeling because you can feel it in your body. So it's about really letting them have their low, having their moment, not almost not needing to for them to explain it, just letting them have it and even just taking your body out of their aura, even just a meter or so, so they can just have their mood or their low. Because the defined emotional being, the emotional being sometimes or very often doesn't have a reason for being up or being down. It's simply just how they're wired. And so the work for that open emotional is like, don't take it personally. You don't have to be the fixer. You don't have to be the helper. You don't always have to be the nice guy. And also really watch your avoiding conflict because the open emotional tends to avoid conflict a lot. So it's like really being aware of where are you being hypersensitive, right? And reacting to something that doesn't need to be reacted to. And where on the other end of the spectrum, are you actually just being like the nice guy, always smiling and avoiding all the conflict altogether? For the defined emotional being, it's really 
like allowing yourself to take time on your own when you're in that low to not feel guilty about being up or down. Right. And to also not like to, to really try not to be the one who says something mean in the argument and start the fight for no reason, because you're the one who probably is going to get the fight started. What happens if there are two emotional beings in a relationship together? So it definitely happens. It definitely, it it seems to be less common, but basically it's like really making space for each other's emotional experience, right? So really, you know, um, whether it is that you like time alone or maybe whether it is that you actually want to have someone close to you and physically touch you when you're having those highs and lows, but you, it's really about a communicating, but B not communicating when one person is really angry or really low, because then that's when things get said that you probably don't mean. And it can be very, very heated. Um, so it's kind of like learning, learning what the other person needs in that moment, whether it's space, whether it's touch, whatever it is, and then coming back to the issue, if there is an issue at all, um, when you both feel at a neutral place. What type of hiccups can we run into with two open emotionals in a relationship? Two non-emotionals can basically, if we think of two emotionals, it's like the fire starters, right? So it's like at least at least things are getting resolved and issues are coming up because there's nowhere for them to hide. Two open emotionals can be on the other end and maybe avoid, avoid conflict altogether um, or almost be, this sounds terrible, but be a little bit stagnant. So you need to just get... <laughs> get because emotional energy is also kind of very seductive in a sense and so it's almost like yeah you you as open emotional beings it's like okay how can we keep this like interesting how can we keep this growing how can we keep it like spicy for lack of a better term when yeah we're both both open emotionals yeah okay we've spoken a lot about the disadvantages of both authorities but what are some of the advantages of an open emotional being in a relationship with an emotional being? An open emotional can offer an emotional really a, like a coolness in terms of like, because when open emotionals are really like taking care of themselves, they're very cool, calm and collected, right? So an open emotional can really offer this like safe, calm, gentle, easy breathing space right? And that can perhaps say to the emotional who's like, can be a little bit more fiery or a little bit more aggressive to be like, okay, maybe they weren't actually being um, really horrible to you just then. Maybe this, maybe it's, that's not actually how it went. Do you, and they can see that they can have a wider perspective of a situation that has, that has a lot of emotional kind of energy tied up in it. You know, they have this wider lens. And what advantages is the emotional offering the open emotional? I really think of like emotional energy as like, it's very Rihanna. That's how I see it. Like, it's very like, you know, it can be up and down. It can be moody, but it's a little bit sexy, whether this is in a friendship or a relationship and sex comes into it or not. It's like, you know, pushing the envelope. Like, why are you putting up with that? You know, stand up for yourself. It's a little bit more kind of like, don't put up with that. Right. So you can, it is, again, anyone can be together, but it is a really cool match, whether it's in your friendship or your relationship or whatever it is to have both of those opposing energies coming together. At this point in the interview, I swayed Emmy in a somewhat selfish direction and chose to concentrate less on the authority and more on the human design types. As a projector, I've been told by many a human design expert that because projectors have very open centers, they find it near impossible to share a bed with anyone who isn't a fellow projector. I asked Emmy if there was any truth to this. Yeah, this is a really cool question. And I think if you're a projector as well, human design is going to be so helpful in relationships and just in life in general. And so projectors, whether you have a lot of centers open or not, what you have is an open sacral center. So this center is second from the bottom in your chart. The reflectors are also the same with this. And so what happens is that even when you're asleep, if you're asleep next to someone who has a defined sacral center, then the sacral center is basically always pumping out like work, life force energy, like this like buzzy kind of 
yeah, like moving forward energy. And so even when you're asleep, you're picking up on that energy and taking it into your system. Um, and so that's a really interesting one for projectors to either try and go to bed a little bit earlier if you're sharing a bed or like, you know, it's a good excuse, maybe one night a week or a weekend every month, you have to go away and stay somewhere else. <laughs> it's not to say everyone is like this, but I see a lot of projectors with manifestors too. And manifestors op- also have an open sacral center. So it is just interesting that maybe if you didn't have any awareness about this whole sacral center thing, you know, you can blame it on incompatibility or this or that, but it's interesting to see like, oh, that's the reason. It's just, yeah. So in terms of human design types, are you better off being in relationship with the same type? You could argue that for sure. Like you could argue, yeah, two generators or a GMG and a generator could sleep well together because they both have sacral centers. But you can also learn so much from being with someone who's so different to you. So like, an, a, let's say a manifesting generator and a projector, which you would, their energies might seem really quite different. Um, you know, if, if the man, that is such a beautiful lesson for the manifesting generator to learn that, that the projector is productive in such a different way and requires such a different lifestyle. And I think the, the baseline of human design really is the more we can learn to live as ourselves, the more that we will help everyone around us. Um, and I really love that because you can, you can learn so much by also then letting people really be themselves, even if that means sleeping in a different bed, which I have heard couples, you know, non-sacral, sacral couples that they do sleep in different beds many nights of the week. And it works so well for their relationship. Ah, I see a common thread, much like astrology and much like the rest of this podcast, when it comes to finding a compatible partner, it's really about an exploration of self first and foremost. But what about when your self isn't as simple as you'd like? The older we get, the more baggage, heartbreak, disappointment and expectation we accumulate along the way. It's not something we ask for, yet it's something we can dismiss so quickly in another. Enter my dear friend, Zoe Bosco. I'm Zoe Bosco. I'm a kinesiologist, a doula, and I'm also a womb spa practitioner. I've been working in the field of kinesiology for the last five years, and over that time, I've really developed my own unique way of using kinesiology. Kinesiology has been an incredibly transformative alternative therapy for me over the years. I've been seeing a kinesiologist since I was 13 years old. But for those who aren't as well acquainted with it, what is kinesiology? Kinesiology is quite simply a form of muscle testing that we use to tap into the subconscious realm. So we use kinesiology to bypass the conscious mind and really feel into what someone might be holding onto in their subconscious field that might be causing an imbalance in their system in some way. So we use either a gentle form of muscle testing directly on the client's body um, using different muscle levers or the form that I use is self-muscle testing by tuning into my client by distance. So I use a form of muscle testing with my hands to find the weak link in the subconscious field that draws us in, I guess, to have a little bit of a look and feel into what that client might be storing that they don't actually know. As you may have gathered from the underlying theme of this episode, kinesiology is just another tool for you to gain a better sense of self-awareness. But how does it help with this work? Um, kinesiology I guess as a self-awareness tool it really just helps you bypass the conscious mind and see further into self into the pockets of self that are harboring things that you may not be aware of how can we use that self-awareness and look at compatibility from a kinesiology perspective If, if we're looking at compatibility in relationship what is compatibility right compatibility is when we don't have conflict with someone or something and we have more of a of an affinity with that person or thing right and to be in affinity with something or someone we need to either be vibrating with neutrality or vibrational frequencies of acceptance love um compassion and these sorts of things um 
the way that kinesiology can help with compatibility is look at where you might be having conflict with someone outside of you or a situation or an event and using the mirror theory technique of whatever we have conflict with outside of ourselves, there is going to be something within us that we have conflict and charge um, towards. So we can use um, compatibility in relationship as a way to come into self and find parts of ourselves that may be harboring conflict or charge or reaction to something that is making us more triggerable to that outside person. Does that make sense? So when it comes to our inner conflicts, our shadow side, and what we might reference as our wounds and baggage, how should we view them when looking at compatibility with a current or potential partner? So I guess, you know, in terms of our wounding and the parts of ourselves that are holding hurt and pain from our early childhood or early relationships, we can really start to look at in terms of coming into a relationship when we've still got wounding that has been unhealed, that's going to eventually show up. And it may even be driving what we attract into our life because it's going to help us heal something. So if we have unhealed wounds um, that need attention, we are more likely going to attract someone into our life that is going to poke on those wounds and be the vibrational match for that wound to bring it to light. And so this can bring conflict within a relationship, but I don't feel like it necessarily means that you're not compatible. And this is where kinesiology can help because kinesiology can help you heal the wounds and come out of projection in a relationship and take ownership of your stuff and come into more of an alignment within yourself, um, more of an affinity within yourself, and then how you show up in the outside world in your relationships will be – in more of alignment, right? So if we're harboring wounds from childhood or especially if we're looking specifically in the term of relationships, if we've had past relationships that have left us heartbroken or wounded in some way and we haven't yet dealt with that, we're carrying that baggage around with us, whether we're conscious of it or not. And I, what I find is with the work that I do, a lot of people feel like they've dealt with things on a, on a level, like they feel like they've, they've got some sort of resolution, right? Um, but it's usually on a mental level, on a conscious level. So they've made sense of what's happened, but in the subconscious field, the wound and the emotional charge hasn't yet had space to be felt and harmonized and released. So it's not until we come into contact with a new relationship and experiences can mirror past experiences that will trigger the old wound and the old wound will arise. And in that we can have conflict if we don't have the capacity to see that it's our own wounding coming up and be able to hold it ourselves and be able to work with it consciously and lovingly. And that can cause conflict within relationship and distort the level of compatibility that is actually um, there. So you've recognized your own wounds, but when you first start dating someone and parts of their wounds and baggage start to surface, at what point do you decide whether it's just an external wound to be dealt with or if it's intrinsic enough to be affecting the relationship long term? For me, I feel like it really comes down to how willing that person is to look within and take accountability and and ownership of their wounding and seek out the appropriate help to help them move through that piece and not, you know, bring their baggage with them and just dump it in their partner's lap and expect their partner to hold that and rescue them from it in any way. Because I think when we fall into those dynamics, we can, it can become unhealthy and toxic in a way. And we go through the victim rescuer cycle. Um, So in terms of long-term compatibility, I believe that it's directly related with how willing each individual is to take accountability for their own wounding and their own emotional baggage and how willing they are to seek out the appropriate help and move through it. So they can come back into alignment and neutrality and unity within their own being first and foremost, and not project anything out onto their partner 
and also, you know, um, I guess be willing to show up vulnerable in that. Like it's very vulnerable to actually have our wounds exposed and, and when our wounds are exposed or poked and prodded, um, it's natural that our defenses come up and our ego wants to protect us, right? So I guess long-term compatibility comes down to how good is the communication in your relationship and how willing is each party um, to take responsibility for their own stuff and to come back to love all the time and see it as a wound. And I think the other piece is when our wounds arise in the relationship and say it's the other person's wound arising, it's really important not to take that personal and not to make it about you. It's really, really important. And it's quite tricky sometimes if someone's projecting upon us, right? It's quite easy to get hooked into that, especially if we have our own unprocessed wounding, right? So in relationship, I feel like we can be compatible on many different levels. We can be compatible on a a mental intellectual level. We can be compatible on an emotional heart level. We can be compatible on a sexual and intimacy level. And we can also be compatible in like our, our desire to grow and evolve. So I feel like if we have wounding that's that from time to time disrupts our state of consciousness, our ability to keep our heart open, our ability to have a regulated nervous system and we go into reaction with our partner, that's quite normal, right? But if we're in a relationship where the communication is solid and each party has the commitment to hold space for each individual to move through their wounding, then I think there's longevity in that relationship and compatibility can grow. Perhaps you yourself have wounds you're working on and that you're processing and you're not looking for someone to care for your wounds or hold your baggage, but you're hoping to find someone to hold space for that processing to take place. I asked Zoe, when we just start dating someone, when do we know when it's time to reveal our stuff and how can we be sure they're going to be able to hold space for it? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. I feel like that, you know, how do we know when to expose our wounds and share our wounds? Like it's going to differ, but for me, it would be when it's relevant. Like, and, and I find that in the moment when something's triggered, the quicker we can speak to it in the moment, the easier it is to resolve. But I think sometimes there's a pattern of feeling triggered and maybe it's a new relationship. So we don't want to be emotional or we don't want to express ourselves fully or we don't want to be fully vulnerable so we we hold it and we hold it and we try to process it ourselves but at some point if that's a trigger it will re-trigger and re-trigger and re-trigger so our partner is going to need to know that that's a trigger for us so a really um easy kind of three-step procedure to kind of share our wounds and share our triggers when they come up is to look at the behavior of your partner that has triggered it, you know, and usually most of the time it's unconscious, like our partners unconsciously trip over our wounds, right? So really being able to see the behavior that has triggered the wound, being able to specifically pinpoint how it has made you feel. So the emotion that it has um, triggered in your field and then looking at the impact that it's had on you and if this trigger keeps happening unconsciously what's the long-term impact going to going to be like will the relation will you begin to lose trust will you begin to lose the ability to be vulnerable or whatever it's related to and will the relationship break down so I think without overcomplicating anything if we're able to see the behavior that's triggered the wound access the emotion and the feeling that's been triggered and then be able to understand the impact that this keeps going on and articulate it from that point of view, then the partner involved should be able to hold space for that. And if they can't, then that's a really good indication of where they're at in their own emotional healing and their own emotional maturity and their own capacity to hold space, basically. Many of you Nay, I say most of you listening to this podcast are single. You're also smart, emotionally intelligent and self-aware. I can tell by virtue of the fact that you're listening to this podcast. 
And it's likely that you're conscious of what wounds and baggage you have. So I asked Zoe, what are some really simple ways that you can look at your wounds and process them before entering a relationship? If, if you know what you're wounded around or if even if you know that you're triggered around something, you can go to a kinesiologist and say, look, I've got charge around this thing. It triggers me all the time. I don't know why. I don't know the full story yet. I haven't been able to tail it back to the original event or the original wound. And the kinesiologist will be able to help you tap into your subconscious field and look at where the original events happened in your life that um, that trigger results from. So the more aware you are of where your wounding comes from, the more you will decharge the wound and heal the wound and integrate it, right? So when it comes to bringing all of that up in relationship, I believe that if triggers and wounds are coming up in a relationship, that person is in front of you because they're a vibrational match for that in some way. So they're either perfectly able to support you and hold space for you or they're holding a wound similar to what you are and it's um, for both of you to work through in some way you know so it's it's a matter of if if you're triggered and you know where it comes from and you're in you're in a new relationship it's a matter of asking yourself, do you want to cultivate the sort of relationship where your emotions and your deeper inner world is safe to be shared and felt? And for me, I'd imagine that if you share it in a way that you're holding your own stuff and you're being accountable for where it comes from and you're not projecting it onto your partner and they can't hold that, then that's an indication that they're not at the same level as you or they're not able to meet you that's probably be a better way you know so it's it's a matter of showing up in the way that you desire to be met in a relationship authentically and letting that actually weed out people and bring in people it's like does that make sense it's like however you desire to be in relationship show up in that wholeheartedly and if that deters people great if it magnetizes people towards you, great. Like using your authenticity and the way you want to relate as a barometer for who's able to meet you. Uh, sound familiar? This is your personal vibration, folks. Be your authentic self. Attract the people who strengthen your vibration. This is how we find a higher love. If you're showing up inauthentically, you may attract a match but not to the frequency of who you are, but rather the frequency you've been vibrating on. Make sense? One last note from Zoe. Showing up authentically is paramount for compatibility. And I don't believe, I don't believe we have to heal all of our wounds before we're ready for a relationship. Like that is a trap, you know, because a lot of the time we attract people in to our life to help us heal our wounds and heal the stuff that we're carrying. And I guess it comes down to awareness, commitment, self-love, self-devotion, um, to the type of relationship that you want. If you loved what Zoe had to say, there is an entire chapter in my new book, Higher Love, that Zoe collaborated with me on titled The Energetics of Dating. We look at some of the energy around some of the most common relationship and dating dilemmas like the chase, unrequited love, desperation, loneliness, and in my opinion, the most fascinating thing we discussed, the energetics of sex. This brings us to the end of this episode, but also to the end of this podcast series. I truly hope this podcast brought you clarity, inspiration, and motivation when it comes to your love life and dating. Self-awareness truly is your greatest superpower, and not just when it comes to love, but in every single area of your life. When you prioritize your own personal vibration, you become a magnet for everything that you long to attract. And hey, if that happens to be a sexy, available lover, great. Remember, this podcast series is just a taster of what you can expect from my new book, Higher Love, in stores January 5th. 
If you're keen to start reading it now, I have a wonderful offer on my website for anyone who pre-orders their copy. Just enter your details and your order number and you'll be emailed the first 26 pages of the book. Plus, pre-ordering guarantees that you'll be one of the first to receive higher love in your hands. Simply click the link in the show notes of this episode or head to jordanalevine.com forward slash books. If you know someone who you think could use a little guidance when it comes to love, make sure you let them know about this podcast. This could be as simple as sharing the link in an email, forwarding it to them via text, sharing on your social channels, or bringing it up next time you catch up for a coffee. If you want to hear more from me, you can catch me over on my other podcast, Luna Lover. Follow me over on Instagram at Jordana Levine or head to my website, jordanalevine.com. It's been a pleasure spending the last 10 episodes with you. I wish you all the best in your pursuit for not just any love, but a higher love. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.